One of the main things that really stopped being talked about when it comes to Warhammer is the Roman inspiration. I think it's mostly because people just see it, know it's there and just ignore it. Move on and not look into it that deeply. Which, you know what, it's understandable. Warhammer wears its Roman influences with no shame at all. Of course, now, <clears throat> there's a discussion, if you will, if we're talking about real Romans or the Germanic Romans from the Holy Roman Empire. But that is more of a history thing, and we'll probably get into it at some point. But since we're doing Talking Legions, let's look at, in my opinion, the best two examples of Rome who encapsulate different things regarding the Empire or Republic. The Ultramarines and the World Eaters. <clears throat> now, see, both their Primarchs had to live on planets that were basically Rome with high-tech, you know, everything. But they had different upbringing, yeah, upbringings, I meant. Gulliman, for example, went on to become more of a politician, more of a diplomat than a proper warrior and conqueror. And Angron was a slave, a gladiator. Of course, inspired by movies like The Gladiator, <laughs> as you can imagine, or the story of Spartacus himself. And I think that works the best. The story of Spartacus is a good inspiration from Angron with the whole slave rebellion and it failing and everything. I think the Spartacus inspiration for that works. Now, this only happens to their Primarchs. But of course, when the Primarchs came into their legions, certain customs and traditions changed. And they started to adopt more those of their Primarchs planet. In Gulliman's case, it made sense that the Ultramarines became more Roman-like, have more Roman aesthetics, use a gladius when fighting, have that pommel thing or pumpuf thing above their head that looks kinda weird. But nevertheless, it looked way more organized in a way, if you will. They, when Gulliman joined the Ultramarines, they started to look more Roman. But what's the other side of the coin? What's on the other aspect of this Roman inspiration? The World Eaters. Well, when the World Eaters reunited with their Primarch, a bunch of them got slaughtered because Angron didn't want to deal with them. Karn was the only one that managed to not die. And even then, things weren't looking that bright. The problem with the World Eaters is that once Angron came into the Legion, he brought nothing new to their culture besides violence and bloodshed. They made, he made his sons more violent and well, they became more violent to garner his approval. It didn't bring any major or cultural traditions into this, besides the Butcher's Nails. The Roman inspiration for the World Eaters is just in Angron's backstory, and that's about it. It's just his Spartacus story, and then he just goes on and lets his sons become butcherers and madmen like him. Which, by the way, I really have a big problem with the whole process of the Butcher's Nails, but I guess yeah, that's better for another time. So we see that the World Eaters aren't really that Roman. 
But when we look at the backstories of Guldiman and Angron once more, we see that there's an interesting perspective made of Rome. You have two types of Rome. You have the more civilized Rome, the one that tried to expand an empire and control everything around it and still be master diplomats. And then you get the bloodshed crazed maniacs who wanted to see blood in the arenas. Of course, Warhammer does this the traditional fictional way where the gladiators are really killing each other. While in the real world, well, the gladiators were more akin to wrestlers in a way because nobody really wanted to lose their paycheck and lose the people they invest a bunch of money in. So it's pretty interesting we have this notion of the gladiators brought in. So we can see one more realistic look at the Roman Empire and Gulliman and his ultramarines and then one more fictional look in Angron's backstory. Which isn't a bad thing, some might even say that you can split them apart. Gulliman's backstory is basically the Roman Republic and all its greatness. While Angron's backstory couldn't be said as well to be the Roman Empire. Both of these things are, comp are comparisons that work pretty well. Then I can see why people would make them. They are there. The fact that they get ignored is a little bit of a problem, but still... It is surprising to see the depth they went, the depth they went into with this. Of course, they went full-blown Roman with the Ultramarines, which I think makes them more interesting in the Horus Heresy than they really are in uh, 40k proper. Again, I don't like the way how the Rome aesthetic is only used in Angron's backstory, and then his sons just became more like berserkers, which is an interesting influence, Viking influence into it, or should I say more like pagan influence, Germanic works as well, but still it has this Germanic influence to it, which kind of makes sense, but it's clear from the naked eye once you look into the World Eater story and everything, that they're more of a mix of different things that were happening around Europe, and... They're trying to play with that. But still, we can't really complain. We get a nice image of Rome. <laughs> now comes the most interesting part. You see, we, we're talking about Rome and its influence in Warhammer, especially the Horus Heresy. I think it's good that we are tackling the Horus Heresy aspect of it, mostly because the Empire, the Imperium, is exactly the Roman Empire at its greatest point during Trajan's, I guess, reign, you could say. Yeah, Trajan's reign. Uh, I'm starting to forget my Roman empires. My Roman emperors, what? No. Marcus Aurelius, of course, that works. Augustus, you can see that it's during their reign, the highest point in the reign of Rome. Now, of course, you can also go to the Byzantine aspect. Of course, you can also look at the Byzantine part where we have Justerian, Justerian by uniting basically the whole Roman Empire again one, under one banner. So, let's keep it simple and just look at normal Rome, the Western Roman Empire. And it's glory that lasted for quite a while. And you can see that it transpawns pretty well into the Imperium. 
they have a strong leader that leads them into greatness and then something blows up because usually that's what really happens in history no good thing ever lasts forever as the roman empire didn't last forever and then we have this point in history that is the turning point for the western roman empire you could as well say it was the third century crisis and I think we're getting close to the 3rd century crisis, but more than 40k. Still, the Horus Heresy represents an interesting aspect of the Civil War and wars that were fought during Rome's time and all the factions that rose against it from its own interior. Let's remember an important thing. Julius, Julius Caesar, as great a man as he was, as great a general as he was, he still went into Rome with his armies, he crossed the Rubicon, and that still made him a rebel and evil in the eyes of the senators. Ale Yaktaest, the dice have been thrown. So you can pretty much understand how the whole Horus heresy cannot just as well be compared to the formation of the Triumvirate after the death of Julius Caesar. You can also compare it to the fight between Augustus and Mark Antony, who started simping for Egyptian um, pharaohs and sand, Usi. Again, there are many comparisons you can make with the Roman aspect of it, because the Horus Heresy really represents a big turning point. One that sees the Imperium thrown from its golden throne, its golden age of technology, innovation and illumination, into something much darker, into something that's now just a parody of what it was. And to make it even better, this new iteration of the Imperium has European Union bureaucracy laws in it, or acts like the European Union and its bureaucracy. So that's pretty fun, isn't it? Not really. But still, going back to our Roman buddies over here, their aspects can't really be ignored, especially once you look at how some of the Imperial Guards, and here's here's a better aspect I like about it. The Imperial Guards were used in an interesting way. Like Astra Militarum back then, I don't even think it was named that, whatever, was still as diverse in its cultural uh, planets and origins as they are today. The Vostroyans were still the Vostroyans back then, but of course not the Vostroyans firstborn, and that didn't come because they were too slow to join the heresy. Nevertheless, they were still there, they were a part of it. The Imperium conquered planets and conquered worlds and took its members whoever wanted to fight, and that's a little bit more dubious, they took members of the world they conquered and went with them into the stars to fight for the Imperium and the greater dream, which is an interesting aspect that can be compared with the start of the Roman Republic, the Roman reign in Italy, back then when it was the Etruscans they were having to deal with. I think I said their name right. I can't really remember these names off the top of my head, so excuse me if I miss something. Still, it works like that. They use certain warriors from cultures and whatever, whatever other places they find them and put them inside their old armies. 
Now, of course, you can make this as a comparison with the Persian army and most bigger armies when it comes to an empire. Same you can say about Napoleon or the real Roman Empire, how they used these units from different places they conquered into their own regiments and their own fighting styles, which is true. It's not common just to Rome, as it's not common only to the Persians. It's still pretty interesting to use that tactic. Of course, we can't overlook some of the more important aspects of it. For example, the Imperium using the Aquila, or the double-headed eagle, as a symbol. And here's an important part. If you see something use that symbol, it's not a Nazi symbol, it's not a fascist symbol. I feel it's so stupid I have to explain this. But just because something uses an eagle doesn't mean it's fascist. Here's a list of countries off the top of my head that use the eagle. Still, America, Serbia, Albania, Romania. I think Bulgaria also does it, but I can't. But I forgot about them. The use of an eagle is older than the idea of fascism. It might even be older than the proper idea of fascists from the Roman Empire. Since we're still at the Roman Empire part, the fascists were bundles of sticks with an axe in the middle that were used for ceremonial purposes. Now, I've also heard that some people were bitten with them, beaten with them, but I think that remains at the point of rumors because it's just a random story I once heard. Nevertheless, the ego is not a fascist symbol. The ego is purely Roman. That's what it is. At the end of the day, having an ego as your standard on yeah, as your standard, having an ego on your flag, having an ego anywhere in fact as a symbol is older than the idea of fascism is in Europe, should I say. It just doesn't work. When you make that comparison, you just show the world you lack the nuances and the range to understand world history to begin with. Just don't get it. And it's okay to not get it, but don't try to act like you know better and you're somehow some moral authority on this. Because you would be surprised how many people I've seen complain about a double-headed eagle being a fascist symbol. It's not. At all, in fact. But we're deviating. Of course, a double-headed eagle, Roman symbol, used very much by the Imperium. They even have this whole thing in the Horus Heresy and even 40k, where they make the sign of the Aquila. I still don't understand how they do it. Where they somehow make the sign of the double-headed eagle, which I presume is just like you make a butterfly with your hands. Again, that's my speculation. To look at the Roman aspect some more, besides the whole Aquila thing, it's interesting, the Imperium has an emperor, but also has a senate. And the senate seems to deal with most of the problems out there. Now, here's where it differentiates a little, because the emperor was mainly the person that went to war and was general over armies. Of course, there are exceptions, and it didn't always happen, because the emperor is only just one man. But it's interesting to see the delegation from the Emperor to Horus as War Master. Because you would think this is breaking the mold. But the truth of it is that 
It's not really. There are many Roman generals that never reached the status of emperor once in their life, but still brought glory to the empire. Like as Scipio Africanus during the whole war against Carthage, Carthago de Est. You will see that he didn't really make it that high. Another interesting example for this is Gnaeus Julius Agricola, who was not only a general of the Roman Empire, but he was also the governor of Britannia. And he's the one responsible for conquering it. Not just parts of it, but all of it. Fighting battles across the country, and eventually as governor, laying down 1,300 miles of road and building at least 60, hear me right, 60 forts. So it's not that uncommon for Roman generals to leave their mark in history while the emperor is dealing with more important things. You might say that well, this kind of applies to most empires in general, not only the Roman Empire, so bringing it up in this Imperium discussion doesn't really feel proper. It feels more like a generalization, and that be that's mostly because the Roman inspirations are there for the Imperium, but they didn't all start from Rome. Rome came with ideas and made things, but it's been done in history after a lot. In fact, it's become common practice to have generals win your wars, to have different army build up structures from different places you've conquered in it. It's not as unique nowadays as it might have seemed back in those times before the birth of Christ, but it still brings an interesting aspect that we can see the Imperium is trying to emulate, and it's doing so pretty well. Especially looking at the Horus Heresy or the period before it, the Great Crusade or the Unification Wars. You can see the build from something great is there and it makes it only a tragedy once it falls. But I think we've looked at this more theoretical things too much. Let's look at some surface level things. The formations of legions mirror the Roman legion organizations of army. High and low gothic is basically Latin of sorts, not even pig Latin or low Latin, common Latin I guess is the proper term. It's just somehow modified so games workshop can copyright terms like Astra Militarum and Deptus Astartes because of course they like their copyrights. It doesn't matter. The thing is still there. And here's something more interesting. During the Great Crusade, when it was the Emperor and Horus leading it, there was also a third one, which created an interesting triumvirate for the Imperium. And that third one was Ferus Manus. Ferus Manus suffers from the problem of being hyped up, hyped up as this genius in battle and so on that just happens to be too cold too tactical, and a little too inhuman, but at the end of the day, he just, you know, we're not really shown this as much as we're told it, and I think it's one of his fallings, but still, the Imperium has a triumvirate that works to bring illumination to the galaxy. Later on, we also look into some pretty interesting things, 
Well, the triumvirate falls once the emperor goes to his duties and leaves the war master to lead the fighting part. Now, there's also some other aspects that are kind of surface level. Both the Imperium and <laughs> the Roman Empire survived a lot. And when I say a lot, I mean it. A bunch of tragedies, invasions, and things that would have probably ended most empires. And they managed to pull through them. The crisis of the 3rd century is still something surprising to see that Rome was able to survive. As was the Age of Apostasy for the Imperium, the War of the Beast, the Black Crusades. You understand where I'm going with this. It just adds up to a lot. And that is interesting. It speaks to the adaptability of humankind overall and how they can manage to pull through everything, in fact. The fact that the Imperium managed to survive through so many tragedies and the fact that the Roman Empire managed to survive through its own set of tragedies speaks well of the humanity that the Emperor wanted to leave behind. And maybe the Imperium is not his dream made manifest. But the humanity has survived and has fought on. And it might just be part of his dream. A little sparkle there of hope for our good Emperor. Nevertheless, let's go back to our Roman inspirations. We all know at some point that the Imperium, or by I mean the Empire, the Roman Empire, got split right in the middle into the western part and the eastern part. And these parts managed to survive and thrive in different ways while things were unfolding around them, from invasions to the rise of Islam and so on. They managed to survive it pretty interesting. And when you look at current day 40k and how the Imperium is, it survived through a lot of tragedies and it's now split apart between what is the Segmentum Solar part, the normal Imperium part, where the light of the Astronomicon still shines, and the Imperium Nihilus, Nihilus part, the dark part of the Imperium that might as well just croak any day now, a part that's closer to the ghoul stars and, you know, was one of the points for the Indominatus Crusade. Still, the split apart is interesting, and you see that Games Workshop continued with this mirroring, with this whole inspiration from the Roman Empire, even in 40k and its current lore, because we're talking current... 40k right now we're not talking things before the primaris we're talking primaris still and it's just interesting to see how they still do this to this day how they still work it in such ways that you can see the inspiration from the roman empire in most things that hold on to the imperium now of course some might say the whole legal and civil process of law is inspired by the Romans or Byzantine in the case of the Imperium. But to that I say that the Romans inspired most laws except the Germanic ones which are kind of weird but whatever. So we can attribute this to Rome but you might as well attribute it to most cultures, more civilized modern cultures that have a good and working legal system. Remember that I talked about the two perils of Rome, the Ultramarines and the World Eaters in the beginning? 
This one is more of a hair stretch and that is the Sons of Horus slash the Luna Wolves. Now, this one's a stretch because their planet is Catonia, which is a Greek name and it refers to the underworld. And Catonia used to operate on gangs, so we could act like the Catonian Luna Wolves, Sons of Horus, are more akin to plebeian gangs during Roman time. But even that is, as I said, a stretch because in the end... There's not that much about them. They seem to be a mix of Greek and Roman aspects. At the end of the day, moving the Imperium, or I guess Horus is moving the Imperium from the Republic to the Empire in a quite tragic way, and a brutal way. But nevertheless, the sons of Horus aren't really that well put together with this aspect of their inspiration. Now that I've talked for like 24 minutes about Rome and uh, Warhammer, it's important to note another aspect. That just because some elements seem Roman, it doesn't mean that the Roman Empire is the only inspiration for Warhammer 40k or the Imperium. I would go even as far to say that this is probably one of the minor inspirations from it. Of course, if we don't exclude everything they took from Elric and Dune and a few other franchises. The Roman Empire thing is like the littlest aspect of the Imperium and it can be shown because they don't dwell that much into those aspects. As I said, the most you get is with the Ultramarines being Romans in space, while Angron's whole Roman thing is his backstory and that's, that's where it ends, his Spartacus story ends there. Then you have the Sons of Horus who are eh, a mixed bag. And certain aspects and elements of what happens in the story, while can have Roman parallels, happen a lot. So at the end of the day, don't take the Roman inspiration of the Imperium and the 40k overall as the end-all be-all. I took a bunch of inspiration from a bunch of stuff to make this whole world and universe and, and empire. I was about to say Imperium, but sure it works. At the end of the day, just take it like this. It's nice that it has Roman inspirations. Some of them visible, some of them more hidden, I guess. But that's about it. Again, don't take this as gospel and act like the Roman Empire is like, the main base for the Imperium. Just one, smine, one small fragment in a bigger story. Now, if they only recognize what they took from Elric, that would be a different situation, but we're not here to discuss that. Nevertheless, I hope you enjoy this, and I'll see you in the next one.